Alyssa Aladef, 14. Scott Bagel, 35. Martin Anguiano, 14. Nicholas Dorit, 17. Aaron Feiss, 37. Jamie Gutenberg, 14. Chris Hickson, 49. Luke Hoyer, 15. Kara Lofren, 14. Gina Motalto, 14. Joaquin Oliver, 17. Elena Petty, 14. Meadow Palak, 18. Helena Ramsey, 17. Alex Shaster, 14. Carmen Shentrup, 16. Peter Wang, 15. I am a loss for words after reading those names. We may disagree where we stand on politics, but we have to come to an agreement that this should never happen again. If anything, the debate should be this, not who's right, not who's wrong, but what will you do as individuals and as a nation to ensure that this never happens again? Undivided, a civil conversation on topics related to faith, race, class, and gender. I'm recording from Los Angeles, California, where I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rachel Adams, who's in Tennessee, and Jesse Seymour, who is in Ohio. For those of you who are unfamiliar with our podcast, uh, we've launched a series recently called Setting the Table. Simply, this series aims to explain why civil discourse is important, especially in our democracy. Now, there is an assumption that politics and religion shouldn't be discussed around the dinner table. Yet, what if the dinner table was a place to discuss our differences and our greatest potential as a nation? As many of you know, while we were off the air, there was a school shooting that occurred at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Um, Jessica, you and I grew up not far from Parkland. How are you processing all of this? Growing up, hearing about school shootings was really frightening, um, just because Columbine happened when I was in high school. Um, so I definitely thought about it, but but I will say this one specifically hit me hard. Like I was crying at lunch the next day. Like it was just I couldn't absorb this one. What was it about this specifically that you couldn't absorb, or why was it? felt so strongly for you? I mean, that's a great question. I feel like proximity to where I grew up is part of it. Um, I also feel like I really saw myself in those high schoolers when I saw those pictures. It just, it really hit home. But I think also it was just kind of that tipping point where it's like, that's enough. Like this is, this is, 
no more. Like, I can't see another kid. I can't. Like, I just, there's a certain point where I, you can't anymore. And it, I, yeah, in terms of understanding a bit more why this one, I would say proximity to where I grew up. But that's not the case for everybody. And it does seem like there's something else going on across the nation. So it's, it's re- a relief to know that I'm not the only one feeling this way. I'm going to be honest, <laughs> but everybody else is kind of also right. Yeah. Okay. This conversation needs to happen and it needs to happen now and change it has does. to happen. Yeah. Now we can't put it off anymore. Yeah. And, and you said that there's something different happening uh, across the nation with this one. Uh, what are you reading in terms of that? What are you, what are um, you perceiving? Oh, uh, just, um, I have been reading different articles that have been circulating um, specifically on Facebook and other forms of social media. I try and like as many uh, news outlets as I can so that I have, as, you know, a, a, I basically try and curate my Facebook feed so I'm not just in a bubble. I try and get as many sides as possible, but right. from reputable sites. I don't want to just have very slanted viewpoints on my news feed. And, um, what I've been seeing is that partly the reason why it seems to be resonating and actually, like I said, sticking in the news cycle is because the students have really started to be quite vocal. And um, this is a public high school, but apparently they did spend a lot of time teaching uh, government and uh, civics and um, other forms of critical thinking when it came to their their school curriculum and because of that they had actually engaged in gun debate previously just as like a mock thing so that was apparently part of their curriculum like I just read an interview with one of the the girls and she was speaking with the Miami Herald and she was saying yeah we've actually had these kinds of debates in class and you know our civics teacher she was really you know helping us like do a pros and cons and having that argument having that conversation so I, you know, she said that I really feel like I was prepared for this, for the, having this conversation. And part of it also was that it's, that's their way of mourning right now. Like they're feeling helpless and they're funneling all that grief into their activism. So it makes them feel like they're honoring the memory of the, of the students they lost. And none of them asked for this. None of them asked for the spotlight. You know, it's not, they've been thrust into this position, but they are in a, taking it taking that opportunity to elevate the conversation i would imagine uh, in your own community or on social media you're seeing certain uh, ways in which people are talking about what's occurred um, what's your read on on the discourse at least about parkland and even uh, because of this the gun debate i guess part of me i th- i think there are some individuals from what I've seen, some individuals who are potentially just kind of not, not that they didn't care or they didn't have any opinions, but that were maybe a little more moderate in their opinions um, about gun control and, you know, rewriting some of those gun laws. I think I've seen, you know, a fair amount of folks who were, you know, thought it was important, but maybe just not their top priority issue that have shifted to, you know, joining the chorus of voices that say, absolutely not. This has to be discussed. We need to fix this now. No more waiting, no more, you know, towing the line. We got to, we got to get serious about this. I have seen some of that, but uh, to be honest, it's also kind of disheartening to see how something so tragic and, and just, 
I don't know, such a horrific event for those of us that were already kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum when it came to the gun debate. I have seen a fair number of responses from individuals that I I knew when I was younger in a little more conservative circles that have said some very harsh and and really I personally feel inappropriate yeah. things. I, I mean, even to the extent that one of my um, acquaintances had made a joke about gun violence literally the day after oh, gosh. the attack happened. And I confronted this person about it saying like, do you really think this is an appropriate time to make jokes about guns? I mean, personally, I obviously never think there's an appropriate time to joke about guns, but honestly, on the day after something like that had happened and the only response that came back was, was one of kind of just a disregard for the, the events that had happened in I guess I'm still working through how right, to, right. to invite dialogue and conversation with individuals who, you know, I already found myself in a place of disagreement with, yeah. but now yeah. because of the, the heightened emotions behind something mm-hmm. that have, has felt so tragic, to see someone who continues to treat this as a well, it's just something that happens and mm-hmm. like they're they're disregarding the weight of what this means. Right. Yeah. I mean, because and what it, it is, yeah. All said at the end of that that conversation, the person basically told me, "Listen, criminals aren't going to turn in their guns, so it's rewriting the gun laws or making stricter gun laws is, is pointless." But that disregards the fact that that there are people who are actively going out and purchasing weapons now. I mean, if if we had instituted stricter gun laws, you know, four or five years ago, the guy who did this shooting in Parkland very likely would not have been able to get a hold of that weapon. I mean, we can all play the what if game for for as long as, you know, the day is long, but... At the end of the day, if it's really easy to get weapons, it seems much more likely that that this stuff will continue to happen. I feel like there's this weird dynamic where people think that we're going to go to their homes and, you know, the police are going to go in their homes and take their guns away from them. Like, no, people can keep the guns that they have. (laughs) Keep those. Like, those are safely within your home. You're fine. You're fine. No one's asking you to surrender your weapons. We're Mm -hmm. just saying that moving forward, we need to take certain guns off the market. Those, you guys who already have them, there's a grandfather clause. It happens all the time. You get to keep them. But ultimately, we're going to take them off the market because they do too much damage when they're in the wrong hands. I was talking with uh, my husband, Chris, about this, and I I was thinking, like, this is quite similar. There are certain parables, rather, to, like, the opioid crisis. Opioids were originally a pain reliever. People took them. They were prescribed them to relieve their pain. So the item was attained legally, and it did its job. But there were certain repercussions, and they were – it was abused, you know, an addiction Mm -hmm. formed. So I feel like with guns, there's that same dynamic where – you take this item that was attained legally right, right. and it's it's in the wrong hands. It's being used inappropriately. There are certain repercussions that we're not seeing. Right, That's right. kind of how I see it. 
but yeah, I feel like some people get, <gasps> someone's going to take my gun and they get really, <laughs> yeah. like, really yeah. upset. And I'm like, well, you get to keep the gun. That is your second amendment, right? We're just saying we need to take certain guns off the table because they don't belong, you know, in a place that's not a war zone. Yeah, I think that this is incredibly emblematic and epitomizes something that's happening on a national level. Uh, it seems to me like any time that there's any new issue or new event that arises, people already know what to say and what to do. Uh, they they kind of dig into their partisan trenches and are unwilling to actually pay attention to some of the nuances of what's actually happening. But one thing that I'm noticing that when any issue comes up, there's almost this metaphorical breakdown that's occurring where uh, a gun symbolizes one thing to one person and a gun symbolizes something else. A gun may symbolize freedom and a, and a constitutional right, while for someone else, it's exactly what we're expressing, which is uh, it, it has immense consequences in the hands of someone who is unstable. There, to me, isn't, uh, first of all, any law that's really robust yet in handling the nuances of what this means. How, how do we protect uh, what people perceive to be a constitutional right uh, based on the Second Amendment? And how do we make sure that communities don't have to experience this any longer? But I want to ask uh, you, Jesse, what are you noticing in terms of uh, what's causing these overall divisions? Um, these divisions are quite difficult because there is this dissonance of like, again, you're speaking with people that you've known all your lives and that you share values with, but you think so differently about a topic that there's like, how do we even find common ground? How do we even get to a place where we agree on something? Should we just never talk about this thing? I feel that people are united in the sense that they want to preserve their rights, their freedom. Mm -hmm. So in this case, you have people who are saying, we want the right to live. You know, that's what um, right. I think right. her name is Emma Gonzalez was saying, we, we have the right to life. That is a human right. Um, and then you have these um, gun owners who are saying, we have the right to protect our lives. We have the right, right to bear right. arms to protect us and ours. I respect both positions, but I feel like a lot of times there's this disconnect where you, and I actually looked this up. It was a TED talk, um, and it was addressing this issue of like why gun violence can't be our new normal. And he was just addressing like why we need yeah. better background checks. But what he said I felt was good. He basically said, "All we need to do is take two circles and overlap them. What I want, what you want, <laughs> and the middle is the common ground. So let's just start from that beginning place, and then work our way in." And I feel I think that we've not yeah. engaged yeah. in compromise in such a long time like jesse, politics has been so jesse that sounds too reasonable to me i want to scream <laughs> this is a podcast this isn't going to sell if we're just reasonable all the got time. it we have to be oppositional yeah we I gotta understand. be a little sexier here okay we gotta so. sell some ratings <laughs> we gotta we gotta oh man yeah so oppositional well, you're right it's not sexy and it doesn't make anybody happy um I'm sorry, to compromise. It doesn't make anybody happy, um, but but it's the only way to make progress. You know, for me, there's, 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 I feel two different things. I feel optimism when I hear that, but then I also feel pessimism. I'll, I'll focus on the optimistic side first. The optimistic side of me has looked at research studies that have shown that uh, though 
your personal beliefs may not change. The way you view someone else changes the moment in which you find something um, that you can have a common ground. Uh, the moment that you find a common ground with someone, for some reason that just changes the dynamic of the relationship. So there, there is beautiful weight to that. But then there's the pessimist in me that also goes, yeah, but those are few and far between and very few, there are very few locations and spaces where people can go do that. And it actually be something that contributes to meaningful change long-term. So there, there, there are examples in history but the thing for me is I, I tend to be a optimistic realist where I go, yeah, this, this sounds really great and there's great empirical evidence for it. But on a historical basis and a cultural basis, um, I, I, it gives me pause at moments because of the extremes that I see that are so polarizing. But if I can think of maybe one solution is having more moderate people speak up, you know, mm -hmm. because it seems that the most polarizing voices, the most extreme voices mm -hmm. are the ones that are getting heard. Well, and I think sometimes, I mean, there's a, and this is something that like, even as I was having, like I referenced that um, kind of a little bit of a clash with someone yeah, yeah. over this whole gun debate and the way that they had been joking about it and treating it lightly and then as soon as I pushed back, um, there was a, a very dramatic shift in their behavior of, hey, I, I am a good person. I have never been unkind to someone. I would never hurt someone. And it was, it was like it suddenly, it was taken personally. And I didn't, I never intended to imply that this person was a violent person or cruel or right, unkind. Right. Yeah. Merely that, that, the way that they were treating this situation and the fact that they were prioritizing guns over yeah, hearing yeah. out people who had just been brutalized by weapons, that part was what was really Difficult. grieving, like yeah. just deeply painful to me. It is extremely important to keep in the forefront of your mind the way that they're hearing what you're saying Right. Not just trying to, you know, argue the point, which, of course, in our own mind is absolutely flawless, because why would why would we argue for something that we didn't feel passionately right. or, you know, was the correct viewpoint? But you, we have to understand that they're also coming from probably the same kind of heart feeling that they're they're arguing for something that is the better, the better way, the, right. the more safe way you know i don't think having a gun would make you more safe um right. i don't think having more guns in general will make us as a population more safe but i need to be willing to hear them out and understand that their argument from that side of the table is one of wanting people to be safe all right we're going to stop right here for a moment and we'll come back after this commercial break Coffee has been a cornerstone of great hospitality for many years. It's delicious and approachable, both complex and comforting. It's a perfect drink for civil conversations. Eastlick Coffee Company is a coffee roasting company that values exploration, experimentation, and trying something new. Their pleasure is sharing their passion, which is their coffee. 
They offer a wide range of coffee flavors from different origins, such as their new Burundi flavor, which has notes of vanilla and blackberry. Head over to eastlakecoffee.com and enter the promo code UNDIVIDED to get 10% off on your next online purchase. We've talked a lot about compromise and like trying to understand, you know, where our common ground is. I do feel that um, we have, there. there is a situation where we're just not able or willing, or we don't even know how to put ourselves in other people's shoes. I do feel like the, our capacity for empathy has, um, it's just not, it's not an emotional skill that, that we've been taught um, through our schools or through our culture. And um, I know that some people are naturally inclined to be empathetic, but I think those of us who are, we, we end up feeling a lot of pain all the time. So we have to shut down. So there's this, it's difficult to be empathetic. You're, you're constantly feeling other people's pain and sometimes it's hard to process it. And I feel like as much as I, as hard as I try to put myself in other people's shoes, sometimes I just, I can't. And, um, or I, I just refuse. Like, no, I don't want to see your perspective. I think it's wrong. <laughs> and I feel like one of the things that, that well, to be, Perfectly frank, I took a Holocaust literature class in University of Miami, and it was where they had buried all of these plays and poems that they, you know, and a lot of these writers died, um, and it was uncovered, and you read that, and then you're you're like, wow, you're putting yourself in the position of these people who wrote this, who, who you don't even know where they are right now. Are they alive? We, we can't connect them. And then you find out people saying the Holocaust never happened. It's like, um, nope, mm, I can't, yeah. I can't put myself in your position. Exactly. Like I can't. So I know that my empathy has a limit. <laughs> like <laughs> it can only go so far. And then I'm like, mm, no. And I feel like I do want to learn more about emotional intelligence and understanding the psychology of, of where that limitation is of like how I can put myself more in another person's shoes to understand yeah. their background, their upbringing, their point of view. I will say it's incredibly challenging to question your worldview. You do feel like your whole world is turning around and you don't know where your starting point is. That's a very difficult thing to go through. But I do feel like it's part of being an adult, about being a grown-up. You're raised a certain way, and then you have to come to an awareness of what's you and what's something that you were taught. Rachel, I know as of late, because we've talked about it, you've been in, uh, fascinated with Jewish culture and theology. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you've come across in terms of, I guess, the role doubt plays, you know, in, mm -hmm. in how we come to a conclusion. Because Jesse said something very true, and I think this, this runs against our programming all the time. Uh, it's very hard for us to question ourselves and to even doubt uh, our conclusions. So I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on that based on what you're learning as of late. I mean, the number one thing that came to mind when you when you first asked the question was the fact that I think when you grow up in mm -hmm. a faith like I did, um, that has a lot of fundamentalist beliefs, meaning mm -hmm. there's one right and there's one wrong. Yeah. And you need to get with the program and get on the right page because if you are reading the scripture or mm -hmm. a given situation in a different way than 
the majority group, Mm -hmm. you're wrong. I think one of the things that I found so liberating in looking to some of the older roots of religion in, in Judaism is finding not just a liberty to question and challenge things, um, both in, in other individuals and in ourselves, um, not just a liberty to do those things, but a, a very enthusiastic encouragement to pursue questioning yeah. and to invite doubt and question things. And um, I feel like I've heard it uh, several times to the point where it's, it's almost a little cliche now, but the quip about, uh, you know, having two rabbis in a debate together and the conclusion being three results like <laughs> that that amongst two Jews you could have a debate and come up with three results as the conclusion is is a joke but it's also it, it seems to hold Truth. true yeah. in a lot of what yeah. I've read that that you know it's okay to to debate to have question and more than that it's encouraged mm-hmm. like asking the question the process of challenging things and thinking through things and talking through things is what the goal is not finding the one Mm. true only answer being comfortable with asking questions has freed me up to see other individuals perspectives and be able to go into a more hospitable open dialogue with them um, because i and becoming more comfortable with questioning myself on things and not feeling that as a threat or an affront, um, but as a goal, as part of the journey. I mean, and that, that to me seems to be another important aspect of, I guess, how we, we grow as individuals, uh, where we have to spend some time examining our conscience, examining what we believe, why we believe it, and really at times even rethinking uh, long-held beliefs. I like this new word that I recently heard, and I'm going to share it with you guys. It's micro-democracy. I, I like this concept, and I like what the word suggests, because it's the, it's the idea that um, not only are you a participant in a larger democracy, but you're also a participant in a more localized and intimate democracy. You know, uh, for me, who I tend to lean towards liberal or policies that tend to be more multicultural, I I find it important to be able to uh, practice certain democratic ideas in my everyday life. So that's that's that means that I have to understand that that other person's a human being like we've mentioned, but also uh, have a more egalitarian view of them where they're also an equal, you know, which is even more difficult, uh, especially when we disagree. Uh, How do I become more democratic in terms of the resources I personally have to help people who are going through grief and loss? How do I become more democratic in terms of the way I hold conversations, whether it's someone that I disagree with or it's just kind of talking with my mom around the holidays? You know, like, how do I do 
this on an interpersonal level, on an intimate level, uh, and then on a local and even national level. But ultimately, I really believe the most fundamental thing is having that element of, of self-reflection and doubt and being able to say, clearly, I don't have all the answers, which is why democracy is important, because it means someone else might. And that means you have to go and find that answer, you know? So I realized I was a, a bigot. So a bigot is a person who's intolerant towards those holding different opinions. And I realized that other people who felt certain ways about certain things, I had no tolerance for them whatsoever. Like just none. And I was just so certain. I have a question. Because yeah, I have what's a question. your question? Are you talking about the fact that I own Crocs right now? Because this is a very you know public way you know of doing what? that. <laughs> We're all it. intolerant of your Croc owning. Completely son. intolerant. I don't understand why people hate these Crocs. And I'm wearing them right now, by the way. I'm going to send no, you No, don't say that. I am. They're really. I can't have an image of you wearing them. They're blue and orange. After no, my those alma mater. I'm a gator. I am not the worst. Wow. Green. Wow. I am seeing bigotry in full face right now. <laughs> Go ahead. And I, but, but I'm not even kidding. Like when, when I'm talking to someone and my blood starts boiling straight away, I'm like, Hmm, you know what? Maybe, maybe this is partly me. <laughs> maybe this is partly something I have to work on. Um, when I'm like zero to right. 60 in 30 seconds or less. So, um, I do feel that I am triggered by certain things specifically. I will say that like once Trump was officially elected president, I burst out sobbing. So yeah. there's a certain trigger there for me <laughs> that yeah. I understand that's partly me, but um, it's hard to differentiate yourself right. from such an emotional reaction. So I have to take that reaction and extrapolate that experience to other folks who are, as I said earlier, they're like, no one's going to take my gun from me. Like that's an immediate go-to yeah, response yeah. or like what Rachel was saying with her acquaintance who was like, I'm a good person. I would never use the gun against another human being unless I was da, 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 da. like, whoa, like this was not attack against you. Just felt like what you said was inappropriate. Back off. I know this is not who you are. Whew. You know, there is that gut reaction to certain things. And when that happens, that it's important to reflect back and be like, maybe it wasn't just that this this person said something that made me upset. Maybe it is something that's internal that I need to address. Right. Um, yeah. And that way, when this comes up again, I can just speak in a, in a better way or react better. Because what they say is, you know, you going from reactive um, to being intentional so that you can control your reactions or whatever. You have a reaction, but instead of uh, expressing it, you can moderate it. That's yeah. again about growth, about emotional growth. You know, it, there's there's space for you to grow. Just continue to remember <laughs> that Crocs are amazing and that I'm right. So that's all you got to do. Yeah, uh, but the colors are wrong. Okay. Yeah, the colors just happen to be right for me, but wrong for you. I, I get it. It's a fast. <laughs> We want to thank Fact Not Fiction for our theme song, Lonely Dreamer. You can check out their most recent album on Friends and Oppenheimer, wherever you listen to your music. We also want to thank Eastlick Coffee for sponsoring our show. If you've not done so, buy their coffee right now. 
It'll blow your mind and your taste buds. Lastly, we want to thank our wonderful producer, Charity Betancourt, for helping us put this show together. For more about our podcast, follow us at www.undividedpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. We'll be back soon with our next episode of Undivided. See you soon.